Welcome to the Head to the Bar podcast. What you're about to hear is provided for general information purposes and support only, and it's not legal education, and it's certainly not legal advice. You should independently check the details that we're just about to discuss. We're up to the second of perhaps four discussions in the sequence on the Supreme Court General Civil Procedure Rules of 2015. And we were up to the point, in spite of my enthusiasm and my desire to talk about unexaminable provisions at the end of the last discussion, we're now at the point where we move to Order 22 of the rules relating to summary judgment. And here, as you may remember, the starting point is not the rules. The starting point is Part 4.4 of the Civil Procedure Act. So it needs to be borne in mind, of course, that the rules are subordinate to the Act. So if, for instance, there was a fact pattern that gave rise to a discussion about the appropriateness of summary judgment in the circumstances of the case, you'd start with the Act and then move to the rules. And in in that process, you're demonstrating your knowledge and understanding of interpretation of legislation and the natural course. And as we'll discuss, the tests are slightly different so that there's a prudence in starting with the Civil Procedure Act test because, of course, it prevails against the test in the rules. So very, very briefly, just to recap, Part 4.4 of the Civil Procedure Act, Section 61 allowed a plaintiff in a civil proceeding to apply to the court. Here we're talking about the Supreme Court, of course, it being the Supreme Court rules, which is that pointer that if you're going to be examined on a particular court, it's likely to be the Supreme Court. And returning to the section, for summary judgment in the proceeding on the ground that a defendant's defence or part of that defence has no real prospect of success. So the test was that the defence in its entirety or part of the defence had no real prospect of success. Section 61 related to the plaintiff, Section 62 related to the defendant. And that section, as you may remember, allowed the defendant in a civil proceeding to apply to the court for summary judgment in the proceeding on the ground that a plaintiff's claim or part of that claim had no real prospect of success. Same test different focus, of course, because this is the defendant making the application rather than the plaintiff. And then you will remember that the test was found in Section 63 of the Civil Procedure Act. So 61 and 62 enabled the application. And then the operative provision in relation to the adjudication of no real prospect of success was 63 subsection 1. So subject to 64, which we'll get back to in a moment, The court may give summary judgment in any civil proceeding if satisfied that a claim, a defence or a counterclaim or part of a claim, defence or counterclaim, has no real prospect of success. And as you may remember, the application could be made by the plaintiff, section 61, defendant, section 62, and indeed under 63 2C, the court could make such an application, sorry, grant such an order on its own motion. And notwithstanding any of that, under Section 64 of the Civil Procedure Act, even if the test was satisfied, the court could order that the civil proceeding proceed to trial if the court was satisfied, despite there being no real prospect of success. The civil proceeding should not be disposed of summarily because it's not in the interest of justice to do so, or the dispute was of such a nature that only a full hearing on the merits was appropriate. And the examples that I'd given when we were discussing those provisions at the time were situations where there was potentially conflict 
in the application of the law previously or where the court considered that it was a case of considerable public importance, so an interest uh, that superseded the issue as between the parties. And in those scenarios, the court may be persuaded not to dispose of the matter summarily, that is, without adjudication, and it was in the interest of the matter to proceed to trial, even if it seemed, of course, that there was no real prospect of success. So with all of that in mind and armed with that uh, discussion in your exam scenario, you would then separately move to the summary judgment provisions of the rules. And I'm not going to take you through every single provision, but let's start with part 2.2, which is rule 22.03. So part two of this, this order, order 22, allows the plaintiff in the civil proceeding under section 61 of the Civil Procedure Act to apply, of course, for summary judgment, but it needed to be made in accordance with that part of the order. So part two of order 22 relates to the procedure and the minutiae to be followed in a section 61 application. 22.04 indicates the application is made by summons supported by an affidavit. It's a long provision, but at its heart, the plaintiff would need to include details verifying the facts on which the claim or part of the claim to which the application relates is based, stating in the belief of the deponent the defence to the claim or the defence to the relevant part of the claim which has no real prospect of success or no real prospect of success except as to the amount of the claim or the amount of the relevant part of the claim. And then the summons and affidavit and any exhibits served on the defendant not less than 14 days before the day for hearing named in the summons. So that spells out the procedure. 22.05 allows the defendant to show cause against the application and it's by affidavit or otherwise. And the affidavit, if any, may contain a statement of facts based on information and belief. And under Rule 22.053, the defendant, of course, needs to serve a copy of the affidavit or any exhibit on the plaintiff no less than three days before the day for hearing named in the summons. If there has been such an affidavit by the defendant, Rule 22.06 allows the court to order, allowing the plaintiff to rely upon an affidavit in reply. And under 22.07, uh, there is the capacity for the court to order any party or maker of any affidavit to attend and be examined and cross-examined or produce any document or copies of or extracts from those documents. So you can see the tenor of the thrust and the thrust of the rules is to govern the procedure that applies in the event that the plaintiff elects to invoke section 61. 22.08 relates to the hearing of the application and it gives to the court the power to dismiss the application, to give such judgment for the plaintiff against the defendant on the claim or the part of the claim to which the application relates as is appropriate, having regard to the nature of the relief or remedy claimed, or the power of the court to give the defendant leave to defend with respect to the claim or part of the claim, either unconditionally or on terms, or with the consent of all parties, dispose of the proceeding finally in a summary manner. And a summary manner, of course, means without proceeding to trial. So they're the powers of the court in the event of invocation of these provisions. 
Okay, so have a look at the balance of the provisions 22.09, 22.10 relate to uh, quantification of damages. And under 22.12, if the plaintiff obtained summary judgment under section 63 of the Civil Procedure Act on a claim or part of a claim against a defendant, whilst that disposes of part of the process, the plaintiff is still entitled to continue with the proceeding for any other claim or for the remainder of the claim or against any other defendant. So, of course, it doesn't um, resolve the matter in its entirety if it's only been successful in part, but it does uh, bind and conclude the parties in relation to the, the, the subject matter of the application. Have a look at the balance of the provisions as indicated. We'll now shift to part three of order 22, which relates to the application by the defendant for summary judgment. So, of course, these are the operative provisions that relate to any application under section 62 by the defendant for summary judgment in a proceeding. And it needs to be made in accordance with the rules that I'm just about to refer to and which you need to um, have a good look at. We see some parallels of course, close parallels between this procedure and the procedure in relation to application for summary judgment by the plaintiff. 22.17, the application is made by summons. 22.18 is that parallel provision in relation to the provision of an affidavit. So have a look at that provision, 22.18, if the defendant intends to rely on an affidavit in support of the application, the affidavit's filed with the summons and then it is served on the plaintiff not less than 14 days before the day for hearing named in the summons. Then 22.19, the plaintiff may show cause against the application by affidavit or otherwise. And if affidavit is to be relied upon, then the plaintiff needs to serve a copy of the affidavit and any exhibits not less than three days before the day for hearing named in the summons. And if the plaintiff serves such an affidavit, the court may then by order allow the defendant to rely upon an affidavit in reply. 22.21 is the parallel provision in relation to defendants. If there's been the exchange of affidavits, the court may order any party or the maker of any affidavit to attend and be examined and cross-examined or to produce any documents or copies of or extracts from those documents in relation to the application. And then under 22.22, the court may dismiss the application upon its hearing, give such judgment for the defendant against the plaintiff on the claim or part of the claim to which the application relates as is appropriate, including any grant of an appropriate stay of the proceeding, having regard to the nature of the relief or remedy claimed, or with the consent of all parties, dispose of the proceeding finally in a summary manner. So they're the powers of the court. So it may essentially be allowed in full, in part or not at all. And there is the facility for the parties to agree and for the court to give effect to that agreement. And then have a look at the balance of provisions and the way in which it operates in relation to the balance of the claim. All right, so that brings an end to the discussion of Order 22 and we move on to Order 23. Now, this is a summary stay or dismissal of claim and striking out pleading. So this one moves adjacently to the proceeding that we've just discussed. It is a different test. So under Regulation 23.01, 
If a proceeding generally or any claim in a proceeding is scandalous, frivolous or vexatious or is an abuse of process of the court, the court may stay the proceedings generally or in relation to any claim or give judgment in the proceeding generally or in relation to any claim. So that's the proceeding generally or any claim that is referable to the plaintiff's behaviour. Under Rule 23.012, where the defence to any claim in a proceeding is scandalous, frivolous or vexatious, the court may give judgment in the proceeding generally or in relation to any claim. So you'll see that the test here is slightly different to the uh, previous provision. So the heart of the summary judgment provisions that we've just discussed related to no real prospect of success. So that is, as a matter of law, uh, integrated with the facts of the particular case. In relation to Order 23 and the rules that we're discussing here, if a proceeding or the claim is an abusive process or scandalous, frivolous or vexatious, which is a, a different test to no real prospect of success, then Order 23 is what needs discussion. And it's a mercifully short order. Note 23.02 permits either the statement of claim or a pleading or any part of a statement of claim or pleading to be struck out or amended if either the document or the specific of that document doesn't disclose a cause of action or defence, is scandalous, frivolous or vexatious, it may prejudice, embarrass or delay the fair trial of the proceeding or is otherwise an abuse of the process of the court. The heart of these provisions relates to some misbehaviour in the way that the claim or part of the claim is made. So that is, it might have been included otherwise than in accordance with law, or it might be included so as to muddy the waters, or there's some other reason to think procedurally that this is not an effective use of process. It's a different sort of test, but it preserves the court's rights to make these orders and you might think that you could make applications under both sets of provisions because it would be the case, it's expressly acknowledged in Rule 23.02a, um, that if the document doesn't disclose a cause of action or defence, then you might think it would be uh, foredoomed to fail it in any event. So summary judgment would be sought and then striking out pleading as well. Now, if such an application is made under Order 23, Rule 23.04 allows evidence to be admissible for any party by affidavit or if the court thinks fit orally. That related back to the application under 23.01. Um, so I'll just be a little bit more precise. So the application under 23.01 was a stay or judgment in proceeding in relation to whether it's scandalous, frivolous or vexatious or was an abusive process of the court. So that allowed the court to uh, consider evidence by affidavit or orally under 23.041. Note, please, and I'll just um, go back and, and uh, be more precise, if the application that's made is to strike out the pleading as opposed to the cause of action or part of the cause of action under 23.02, then the court takes into account the pleading but no affidavit evidence under 23.042. All right, so then we move on to Order 26, and as always, I commend to you the text of the actual rules. 26 relates to offers of compromise and is to be read in combination with the old common law Calderbank offers. 
In a past life, when I dealt with civil procedure, I was asked what were the difference between call-to-bank offers and offers of compromise. The answer is there are differences in form. I'm about to take you carefully through the form of an offer of compromise under Order 26 of the uh, rules. If it's, it doesn't comply with this form, then it might be suggested that it is a call-to-bank offer in the alternative. So call-to-bank offers didn't, don't have the formality of offers of compromise under Order 26. So then the next question is, well, why would you go through the trouble of, of complying with the form of the order of, uh, of Order 26 because it really is quite specific? Well, the answer is because there is greater certainty in relation to the cost implications of a failure to comply with an offer of compromise. So if the parties have gone to the trouble of form compliance with Order 26, then they get the benefit of relative certainty in relation to cost implications. Call-to-bank offers can be made on an informal basis, but there's also a relative informality in relation to the certainty of the formula that's used in relation to quantification of damages. But as I've mentioned in the past, we've been told specifically that the calculation of costs under Order 63 from memory is not um, one of the examinable topics, so I'll leave it there. So Order 26 starts with definitions on 26.01 and many of those provisions are self-evident. The only one that is controversial relates to the quantification of costs. So note ordinary applicable basis if you move into practice in this particular area or continue to practice in this area and the necessity of understanding the way that costs are calculated on a party and party basis vis-a-vis -a, -vis a standard basis. 26.02 starts with the generalities of an offer of compromise before we start moving into the specifics. So a party, it could be either the plaintiff or the defendant, may in respect of any claim in a proceeding serve on the other party. Please note there, of course, it's not filed. It's not evidentiary, except as it can be taken into account as to quantification of costs. So it's only served and not filed. And the document that we're referring to here is an offer of compromise on the terms specified in the order. Now, commonly the terms specified might include nomination of a, a, a sum in damages, but the party can really suggest any condition that uh, may be considered appropriate to entice the opponent to resolve the claim without the necessity for trial. So it could involve terms of payment. It could involve other conditions with respect to continuation of arrangements or discontinuation of arrangements and any other terms that might be thought satisfactorily to resolve the process. 26.022, the offer of compromise may be on terms that take into account other claims made in the proceeding between the parties, such as where, for instance, there has been a counterclaim. Um, so that the offer of compromise may be an offer that compromises both proceedings and results in an offset. Now, in order for proper compliance with Order 26, Rule 26.023, the offer of compromise must be in writing prepared in accordance with rules 27.02 to 27.04, not examinable, and importantly, contain a statement to the effect that it is served in accordance with this order, Order 26. So it needs to go to the trouble of specifying the formality of the fact that it's prepared in accordance with Order 26. And it must state expressly that the offer is inclusive of costs or that costs are to be paid or received in addition to the offer. 
So under 26.02, that is the last of the formalities required by this provision in order for there to have been proper compliance and therefore the consequences that flow from some forensic success that happens later on. 26.03 relates to issues of timing. So under 26.031, an offer of compromise may be served at any time before verdict or judgment in respect of the claim to which it relates. So a jury could be impanelled um, and closing addresses could be in full flight only for there to be this offer of compromise made. And 26.032, there can be more than one offer of compromise. 26.033 allows the offeror to express the period of time during which the offer is open to be accepted after service, but it can't be less than 14 days after such service. And 26.034, a party on whom an offer of compromise is served can accept the offer by serving notice of acceptance in writing on the party who made the offer before that expiration of time either specified or 14 days or prior to verdict or judgment in respect of the claim to which the offer relates. So relating back to that scenario where closing addresses are in full flight and the jury is just about to be charged and sent out, if there hasn't been offer, of course, by the time the jury returns its verdict, then it's too late to accept. Under sub-rule five, the offer of compromise can't be withdrawn during the time that it's open to be accepted unless there's an application to the court and the court otherwise orders. Now, upon the acceptance of the offer of compromise that states costs are to be paid or received in addition to the offer, you can see the implications under sub-rule seven. So the way that they're calculated are that unless the court otherwise orders, if costs exclusive to the sum in the offer of compromise, the costs are to be paid or received in respect of the claim up to and including the day the offer was served. From that period to the point of acceptance, liability for any costs is in the discretion of the court. So if, for instance, the offer was made on day one of trial, let's say, and it's for $100,000 with costs to be paid separate to that, it's open for 14 days. And as you can understand, at the juncture of trial, let's say there's very experienced senior counsel and junior counsel briefed and an instructing solicitor the costs which would accrue from the date of service of the offer of compromise to the date 14 days later might be a period of fairly intense billing. The only part by which the offeror is bound is costs up to the date of the, of the service of the offer, and then the rest is at the discretion of the court. Rule 26.031, the offer of compromise providing for payment of a specified sum of money to a party is taken to be payment of that sum within 28 days of acceptance of the offer unless the offer otherwise provides. So if it's going to be offered on terms such as payment via instalments, that needs to be set out clearly, otherwise the default position will be that it is all due and payable within that 28 days. 26.04, the offer is made without prejudice unless the offer otherwise provides and that is save us to costs. So at a later point, it might be revealed after judgment is entered that there was the existence of an offer of compromise, but it's not an admission. And so that's always, as we've discussed in, in another area, that's always facilitated that flow of uh, that communication. 
26.05, certain prohibitions. The fact of the offer of compromise can't be contained in any pleading or affidavit. And if it's not accepted, no communication with respect to the offer can be made to the court on the trial of proceeding. So the only reference that can be made is after all questions of liability and relief have been determined. That is the first opportunity that either party can refer to an offer of compromise. So these procedures uh, endorse the common law that we've looked at in, in relation to the area of without prejudice communications. And they're really designed to facilitate that flow of communications that might resolve the matter without the necessity of it going to trial. Have a look, please, at the balance of Order 26. I'm just going to refer to a number of the rules. Of course, all of them are examinable. If, let's say, there has been an offer which has been accepted by the party and the principal agreement related to the sum of money, the acceptance may be withdrawn if the sum of money was not paid within the time provided by the offer or if it was silent as to time within 28 days after acceptance of the offer and the court on the application of the party who accepted the offer gives leave. Rule 26.072, let us assume that there has been uh, the acceptance of an offer of compromise only for the payment not to be forthcoming. The acceptor in applying for the court's leave may also seek orders to restore the parties as nearly as practicable to each party's position in the proceeding at the time of acceptance and orders as to the further conduct of the proceeding. So, of course, on with the show. 26.07.1, if after acceptance of an offer of a compromise, a party to the accepted offer defaults in complying with that party's obligations under the offer, the other party can apply to the court for an order giving effect to the accepted offer, staying or dismissing the proceeding if it's the plaintiff who's in default, striking out the defendant's defence if the defendant is in default, or that a claim not the subject of the offer shall proceed. So the way that it works is effectively there is that binding agreement between the parties and if it turns out that one party has not complied with their obligations, then the court may order, for instance, that the accepted offer proceed or that other deeply procedural substantive um, steps take place as a result. 26.07.2 relates to the scenario where there are um, multiple defendants and you can work through the contingencies arising there. So I'll draw that to your attention. And 26.08 notes cost implications of failure to accept. Now, um, this becomes a little bit complicated, so I'll try to keep it as compressed as I possibly can. For those of you like me who like seeing things visually, or I say mathematically, it's just as simple as a straight line, you can draw your um, horizontal line now. And on the left-hand side is the really the commencement of proceedings. And we've looked at how proceedings are commenced and so forth, but and the taking of instructions and the drafting of the statement of claim happens even prior to that. At the next point, uh, midway or two-thirds of the way, you draw another line, which is the service of the offer of compromise. And lastly, on the right-hand point, you have verdict or judgment. So you have that horizontal line with the three points, commencement, offer of compromise and verdict or judgment. So 26.08 relates to the cost consequences of a failure to accept. So that offer of compromise was served in accordance with this order. And in the meantime, um, the matter has proceeded to verdict or judgment without acceptance. 
The first scenario is this. So an offer of compromise is made by a plaintiff and not accepted by the defendant. So let's look above that horizontal line. What has happened is that the plaintiff wins. So you would add an annotation that the plaintiff has made the offer of compromise. So draw the letter P if you like above that offer of compromise notation. And then you proceed to judgment or verdict and the answer is the plaintiff wins. Furthermore, the plaintiff obtains judgment on terms to which the offer relates no less favourable than the terms of the offer. So in other words, the plaintiff actually wins at least what was in the offer of compromise or more. And you can imagine if a judge were to hear about this, that they then say that this entire trial has been futile because at some point in time on your timeline, there was an offer of compromise in that sum or even half of that sum. And this whole exercise has been futile. Here are the cost implications that follow. Under Rule 26.082A, if the claim of the plaintiff is for damages relating to death or bodily injury, then the order that will be made against the defendant is for the plaintiff's costs from beginning of the timeline all the way through to verdict or judgment taxed on an indemnity basis, which is, if you're not accustomed to civil proceeding, a huge forensic win in relation to costs. They're not the norm in relation to the quantification of costs. Now, let's say that the claim is for anything else. So it's not for damages for or arising out of death or bodily injury. So in the case of any other claim of the plaintiff, the order for costs made against the defendant is for the plaintiff's costs in respect of the claim before 11am on the second business day after the offer was served, taxed on the ordinary applicable basis, and the plaintiff's costs thereafter taxed on an indemnity basis. So where we look at our visual scenario, where we have our timeline starting with commencement of proceedings, we have our little notch for offer of compromise, and we have a verdict or judgment in um, where the offer of compromise has been made by the plaintiff and the plaintiff has won. We've talked about death or bodily injury and the fact that the plaintiff has this tremendous win. The second scenario is for any other claim made by the plaintiff. The way that it works would be that you would draw a little node above your commencement of process and draw a second node two business days after service of the offer of compromise. And that spell is going to be costs on the ordinary applicable basis. And then the space in time between that notch, the second business day after the offer of compromise and the date of verdict or judgment is at that enhanced uh, indemnity basis. So that is a partial but tremendous victory. So our next scenario, we're nearly at the end, but not quite, um, using that same timeline, rule 26.083. Let's say the offer of compromise is made by a defendant and is not accepted by the plaintiff. So let's use that nice bare space underneath the timeline. You can use the same point of the offer of compromise, but you'll make a note that here D has made the offer of compromise. And in this scenario, the plaintiff has won, but the plaintiff ends up with some outcome that's not as good as the offer of compromise. So cut to the face of the judge who later hears about this, who is cross at the plaintiff, though they've won, which is fantastic for the plaintiff, they actually ended up with less than they should have accepted at the point that the offer of compromise was served. And again, the whole trial has been futile. 
in such a case, while the, I'll, I'll just say the ordinary course, of course, would be that the plaintiff who has won would be cost taxed on the ordinary applicable basis. Here's the tweak. So under 26.083A, unless the court otherwise orders, the plaintiff shall be entitled to an order against the defendant for the plaintiff's costs in respect of the claim before 11am on the second business day after the offer was served, taxed on the ordinary applicable basis. So get out your pen again, you start with costs at commencement of proceedings, that's one little node. And then the second node is two business days after service of the offer of compromise, which they should have accepted. And for that spell under this order, um, they get their costs on the ordinary applicable basis. But then the twist is the defendant gets an order for costs against the plaintiff for the defendant's costs in respect of the claim thereafter, taxed on the ordinary applicable basis. So we start with our node that's already there, two business days after service of the offer of compromise, we end up with a second one at verdict or judgment. And that's the point at which you might think that costs are accrued um, most quickly because, of, of course, the intensity of legal representation at trial. And the defendant, even though they've lost, gets their costs on the ordinary applicable basis between that second business day after the offer of compromise is served and the date of judgment. So the plaintiff wins, but not as much as they should, should have if they'd accepted the offer of compromise, plus they get the burden of that cost implication. And the third scenario arising out of 26.08, you're going to need a bigger bit of paper, is sub, sub rule four. So an offer of compromise is made by a defendant. So here's our third scenario, but it involves some similarity with that previous scenario in that we create a node at commencement of proceedings and we create a second node two business days after the offer of compromise is served and we put defendant offer of compromise. And then what happens? There, the plaintiff fails to accept the offer and judgment or verdict is that the claim is dismissed or the defendant wins outright. So at verdict or judgment, D wins. Now, in the ordinary course, the cost implications would be that D is entitled to costs calculated on the ordinary applicable basis from the commencement of claim to that verdict or judgment. Now, in the meantime, the defendant has offered to compromise proceedings and the plaintiff has not accepted. In such a scenario, the ordinary rule as to costs is manipulated. Defendant shall be entitled to an order against the plaintiff for costs in respect of the claim until 11am on the second business day after the offer was made, taxed on the ordinary applicable basis. So your third timeline involves that first ambit between your first node, commencement of proceedings, that is, and your second node, two business days after the offer of compromise is served, that's on the ordinary applicable basis, nothing new there, but the defendant then gets an order against the plaintiff in respect of the defendant's costs on the indemnity basis. So from that occasion, two business days after the offer of compromise was served to the moment of triumph where the defendant receives verdict or judgment in their favour, then they get their costs for that spell um, taxed on the indemnity basis. All right, that is as deeply procedural as this provision gets. Note, please, and, and we're coming to the end probably happily for you, um, 26.081 relates to pre-litigation offers. So either party has made an offer in writing to another party, whether or not it's expressed to be without prejudice to compromise any claim in the proceeding on the terms specified. Um, so this might be a call to bank offer. 
Um, the offer was open to be accepted for a reasonable time, but it was not accepted. And the offeror then ends up with judgment no less favourable than the terms of the order. The court shall take those matters into account in determining what cost orders to make. So 26.08.1 is a rule-based consequence for a call to bank offer. That is any offer in writing to another party that fails to comply with the formalities of the order. So having a look at the rest of the provisions of Order 26, which of course you must, I'll just consider whether there are any to which I need to uh, refer your specific attention. Have a good look, please, as to the, the balance of those provisions and incorporate any that are needed into your notes, 26.10, 26.11, Our very last point of discussion is an enormous one. So we'll see what we can work through in the time remaining to us, and that is discovery. I don't want to rush this. Now, firstly, we start with cross-referencing the Civil Procedure Act. So we need to turn to Order 29, but not too early, please, because we have to remember, of course, that Part 4.3 of the Civil Procedure Act is the uh, dominant legislative provisions. I'll review this and we'll see how, as mentioned, how far we can get into Order 29. So starting with Section 64 of the Civil Procedure Act, as you may remember, Section 54 notes that unless the court otherwise orders discovery of documents in a civil proceeding is in accordance with the rules of the court, which we need to look at. Section 55 permitted the court to make any order or give any directions in relation to discovery that it considered necessary or appropriate. Section 55A allowed the provision of docu all documents in a party's possession to another party by consent. 55B allowed an affidavit of document management. You'll remember that that was an extraordinary creature for the Civil Procedure Act. So it may include volume, manner of arrangement or storage type of location of discoverable documents in the party's processes of document management, which you might think might become appropriate, such as in the case of hypothetically tobacco litigation where a document management process revealed that after a period of time that documents would be destroyed or archived and otherwise not in possession. Section 55C permitted an order for oral examination in relation to that affidavit of document management. Section 56 permitted the court to order sanctions. Uh, Section 57 allowed cross-examination in relation to discovery obligations. And that was the set of provisions that you needed to note. So let's now turn to Order 29, which is, of course, the um, source of the procedures in relation to discovery. Starting point that you need to be really familiar with is that it only relates to proceedings commenced by writ. So if a proceeding has been commenced by originating motion, which is really secondary to your studies, then no discovery obligations apply, which seems to make sense because they related to issues, for instance, where there might not be another party. Here are the documents which must be discovered, 29.01.1. Firstly, it's documents. So the first um, provision that you need to consider relates to the definition of documents. Next is the documents which must be discovered unless the court otherwise orders set out in 29.01.1 sub rule 3. So firstly, it's documents. Secondly, it relates to parties. It doesn't relate to witnesses. It doesn't relate to anyone else. And the documents of which the party giving discovery is, thirdly, after a reasonable search. And fourthly, 
relate to one of the following four categories. So documents on which the party relies. B is documents that adversely affect the party's own case. C is documents that adversely affect another party's case. And D is documents that support another party's case. So each party not only needs to disclose the existence of um, documents that assist their case, but also documents that adversely affect their case and, of course, documents that adversely affect another party's case. Now, if you're not familiar with the definition of documents, have a look at the Interpretation of Legislation Act, which defines documents for all Victorian acts and rules. 29.01.14 creates the first exception. If a party giving discovery reasonably believes the document is already in the possession of the party to which discovery is given, then you're not required to discover that document. And a party required to give discovery who has or has had in their possession more than one copy of a particular document only needs to discover one copy of that document. Going back to the definition of reasonable search, then the party may take into account nature and complexity of the proceeding, number of documents involved, ease and costs of sorry, ease and cost of retrieving the document, significance of any document to be found and any other relevant matter. So 29.01.1 deserves a good summary in your notes in relation to those preconditions relating to parties, relating documents, relating to reasonable search and relating to those four categories. So next, 29.02. So discovery takes place after the exchange of pleadings. So recap all of the documents that were exchanged in pleadings until the very last reply. At that point, the stage of the proceedings transitioned from pleadings to discovery. So the day after uh, the pleadings are closed, any of the parties by notice for discovery served by any other of the parties can require the party served to make discovery of all documents which are or have been in that party's possession and which in accordance with the preconditions of Rule 29.01.1 are required to be discovered. And the notice for discovery must be in Form 29A. So when time allows, have a quick look at what Form 29A prescribes. A notice for discovery served a little bit early before the pleadings are closed is taken to have been served on the day after the pleadings close. Then the party receiving the notice for discovery must make discovery of documents within 42 days after the later of serving of notice or that deemed day if it's been served prior to the closure of pleadings. So 29.03 creates that timing obligation of that 42 days. So the recipient of that notice for discovery then under rule 29.04 drafts an affidavit of documents for the purpose of making discovery of documents. It's in form 29B, please have a look. And it needs to set out the following. Firstly, it must identify the documents which are or have been in the possession of the party making the affidavit. So that's point one, they need to be itemized. Two is enumerate the documents in convenient order and describe each document. Or if it's in, in the case of a group of documents of the same nature, describe the group. Next, it must see, distinguish those documents which are in the possession of the party making the affidavit from those which have been but are no longer in that party's possession and shall as to any document which has been but is no longer in the possession of the party, state when the party parted with the document 
and the party's belief as to what has become of it, then you might think might prompt some recipients of that affidavit to think about their affidavit of document management processes under the Civil Procedure Act if it seems that a conspicuous number of documents which would undermine the party making discoveries case seem to be no longer in that party's possession. And lastly, under 29.042, sorry, are we still up to 1D, where the party making the affidavit claims that any document in their possession is privileged from production, states sufficiently the grounds of that privilege. So if it's without prejudice, then that needs to be declared. If it's client legal privilege, then that needs to be declared privilege against self-incrimination, etc. Then moving on to sub rule two, if a party required to give discovery in accordance with rule 29.01.1 does not in making a reasonable search as required by rule 29.01.1, search for a category or class of documents, the party must include in the affidavit of documents a statement of the category or class of documents not searched for and the reason why. So that's the prescription as to the affidavit and the contents of that affidavit. It's not uncommon for there to be a question in a bar exam uh, requiring you to identify out of a group of documents which documents need to be discovered and the form in which uh, that should take place. All right, we'll deal with perhaps a couple more rules and then we'll take a break. 29.05, in order to prevent unnecessary discovery, the court may before or after any parties required to make discovery by virtue of a notice for discovery, order that discovery by any party shall not be required or shall be limited to such documents or classes of documents or to such of the questions in the proceeding as are specified in the order. So it might be that the recipient for the application for discovery realises that from the pleadings there are certain parts of the case that are not in dispute and it would become burdensome to have to discover documents that uh, relate to the parts of the, the matter which are not in dispute. On that basis, such an order could be sought. And lastly, under Rule 29.05.1, at any stage of a proceeding, the court may order any party to give discovery in accordance with Rule 29.01.1. So that would assume that the situation is that the party has not necessarily uh, received a notice of discovery, but discovery is the next logical step. Thank you. That brings a premature end to the discussion of Order 29. That's the point at which we'll continue discussing the rules in the next discussion. Thank you for listening to the Head to the Bar podcast. For outlines, links to resources and other downloads, please refer to the show notes.